You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Anybody here ever been convicted of murder? Oh, wait a minute, don't raise your hand if you have. <laughs> because the people around you would stop listening to the sermon and start wondering about your story. But I have a hunch that if I invited people to raise their hand if they'd ever been convicted of murder or even charged with murder, there would be few or even more likely no hands up here this morning. Good for you. <laughs> you have heard that it was said. Everybody knows. For centuries, everybody's known that murder is wrong, and if you commit murder, you pay the price. But Jesus says, I'm here to tell you that God expects more. I'm here to tell you that refraining from murder does not mean you have kept the law, it just means you've kept the letter of the law. To keep the spirit of the law, you have to also be innocent of anger, which is the heart of murder. Cain murdered his brother Abel in his heart before he ever brought the club down on Abel's skull. King Saul murdered David in his heart, even though he was unable to pull it off, literally. Cindy murdered Sonia in her heart before she strangled her to death in 1989. Little Iowa town was rocked when their homecoming queen was strangled to death by a classmate. Cindy and Sonia had vied for the attention and affection of handsome, strapping Jim. And when Jim chose Sonia, Cindy's anger morphed into murder by strangulation and left a community choked with grief. Now, millions of us have never brought a club down on somebody's head or thrown a spear or choked anybody by tightening a belt around their neck, but we have conceived murder in its embryonic form, anger. If we're honest, we would admit that we have wished somebody dead. If we're honest, we know where murderous anger could have led us. G.K. Chesterton invented a, a detective, Father Brown, and um, Father Brown once explained his method of detection by saying, you see, it was I who killed all those people. What he meant was to find out the motive, the reasons, the mentality that would produce murders, he only had to look into his own heart and found what he was looking for there. Chesterton lets him elaborate. No man, Father Brown says, no man is really any good until he knows how bad he is or might be, until he's realized exactly how much right he has to all this snobbery and sneering and talking about 
criminals as if they were apes in the forest 10,000 miles away until he has squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees until his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe and secure under his own hat. You never murdered anybody. That's good. You're as good as the Pharisees. But unless your righteousness, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 22 of our text says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And some of you may have footnotes, marginal notations, that say some Greek manuscripts of Matthew add the words without cause after the word brother. If you're angry with your brother without cause. Now the translators of the New International Version have concluded that those words were most likely not in the original text and that's why they're put in the margin. But it's true. There is a kind of anger that is righteous. God is angry. Jesus got angry. There are saints in the Bible who got rightly angry. And God's people today can be rightly angry. But that's another sermon. Good and angry. And the reality is that most human anger is not righteous anger. So although the additional words make sense in the context of life and the Bible as a whole, it was right to leave them in the margin here so that we could feel the force of what Jesus says. I tell you that anybody who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, this is the middle of verse 22, if you're following in your copy of the Bible. Again, anyone who says to his brother, mindless idiot, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, that is the earthly council at the time. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Saying certain words can get you in trouble with earthly authorities. A number of years ago, a Michigan man was canoeing down the river. His canoe tipped over, and when he emerged and got himself to shore, he was cursing. I can relate. But there was a family of four there, and the mother put her hands over her children's ears and a nearby police officer ticketed the man, citing a 101-year-old law that was still on the Michigan books that prohibited cursing in the presence of a lady. <laughs> so you can get in trouble. <laughs> you can get in trouble with earthly authorities, Jesus says, for saying something insulting. But, but God may send you to hell. Some people naively think 
that when Jesus came, he made things easier for everybody. There were these Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, who had all their rules and regulations, but along came Jesus and he threw all that out and brought a feel-good message about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and said, let's just all love each other. But if you actually read the Sermon on the Mount, you see that Jesus made it a lot tougher for us. Impossibly tough for us. In his kingdom, it's not enough to not murder. You have to be innocent of unrighteous anger. And where human courts may fine you for insulting speech, God may punish you internally. Not only is adultery wrong in the next paragraph, but even lust, which gives birth to adultery. That was last week's message. Are you careful to keep your oaths? Well, why do you feel like you have to bolster your word by swearing an oath in the first place? Isn't your bare word trustworthy? And so on in the paragraphs that follow. The righteousness expected by the kingdom of heaven is more than, harder than, rule-keeping. It's heart righteousness. Perfect conformity all our heart's affections to the impossibly high standard of God's own heart. But Jesus met that standard. <laughs> the kingdom's king met the standard of righteousness that the kingdom demands. And his father credits that righteousness to the king's subjects by grace through faith. This is what theologians call imputed righteousness. The Apostle Paul, years later after Jesus, put it this way, God made him who knew no sin, that is Christ, to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God imputes, that is, credits, our sin to the sinless one who willingly suffers the judgment for that sin, which we should have borne, and then God credits the righteousness of the sinless one to us so that we might enter the kingdom of heaven. Sound like a pretty good deal? God imputes righteousness, but God not only imputes righteousness, he imparts righteousness. Now, don't be thrown off by the theological vocabulary. This is just shorthand for life-changing truth. God not only imputes righteousness, that is, treats the citizens of the kingdom as sufficiently righteous because of their union with his son, but he also imparts righteousness. He begins a process of making us in practice like his son. It's a lifelong process. Nobody ever dies and goes to heaven completely perfect, but day by day, hour by hour, little by little, God, by his spirit, enables Christians to 
conform to the high standards of Christian counterculture. So our response to the Sermon on the Mount is twofold. In the first place, we just acknowledge how far short we fall and embrace God's gracious gift of imputed righteousness. We know we have done nothing to deserve it. All we have done is accept a free gift. That, that's part of the response we have to the Sermon on the Mount. But then we also begin to do what Jesus tells us to do. He preached this sermon not only to show us our need of grace, but also to show us how he wants us to live. And here he says that since anger is murder in seed form, then kingdom people will root anger out of our hearts. Anybody notice how angry our world is today? How angry Christians are? I'm, I'm in the midst. I read the news. My temperature starts to rise. I type up a social media post and then think better of it because it's not kind. It's, it's angry. But this paragraph speaks to me and it speaks to you. Yes, I, far sh I fall short of the kingdom's standards and I trust the king's amazing grace, but then I don't leave it there. With this help, I try to root anger out of my heart because it leads to murder. And if calling a f your brother, anybody else a fool, leads to divine judgment, then by all means, thank God that his son took that judgment for you, but then also be reconciled to your brother. <laughs> Verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. The picture here is of temple worship in the first century. Jesus is talking to people who still, to worship God, brought animal sacrifices to the altar at the temple. But it should be easy for us to make application to our own time when we don't have a literal altar or literal animal sacrifices. We ought to be able to envision piety, Christian living, living to the standards of Christian counterculture where before we engage in public worship, we make sure that things are okay between us and other people. As much as that's possible. As much as we're responsible for it. I don't think necessarily we have to add an item to the order of service where before the sermon or before the offering, we all get up and cross the room or come down off the platform and ask forgiveness from other people, though that might be messy, but it might please Jesus. But without taking it with wooden literalism, we can accept Jesus' instructions here and realize that it can't be all right between me and God if it's all wrong between me and my brother. And do what is in our power to make things right. 
The movie, The Straight Story, is based on a, a true story. It chronicles the pilgrimage of a 73-year-old man to mend a broken relationship with his brother, who he hasn't seen or spoken to in 10 years. Alvin Strait lives in Iowa. He's lost his driver's license because of impaired vision, and he gets word that his brother out in the mid, or, uh, upper Midwest, in Wisconsin, I guess, um, has had a stroke, and Alvin decides that he's going to make the journey somehow to reconcile with his brother. He hitches up a makeshift wagon to his John Deere lawnmower, his rider mower, and sets out on a 500-mile trip that takes him about six weeks. He sleeps in fields in the backyards of hospitable people who have let him camp out there along the way. He camps out in a Wisconsin church cemetery, makes a little campfire between the gravestones, and the pastor of the church notices this and takes out a pot of meatloaf and mashed potatoes, and, and then a conversation ensues. The pastor says, uh, I can't help but notice your unlikely mode of transportation. Alvin mentions a brother who lives in the area, and the pastor sort of recalls maybe having met a man by that name while making calls in the hospital, but admits that he doesn't remember the man saying anything about a brother. Alvin says, neither of us have had a brother for a long time. Lyle and I grew up as close as brothers could be. We were raised in Moorhead, Minnesota. We worked hard. We would make games out of our chores. We used to sleep out in the yard almost every Sunday night. We used to talk to each other till we went to sleep. Pretty much talked each other through growing up. The pastor said, well, what happened? Alvin's tear, uh, eyes well up with tears, and this is a story as old as Cain and Abel. Anger, pride, mix in a little liquor, you got two brothers who haven't spoken in 10 years. Watch the movie for the rest of the story. It shouldn't take 10 years. Jesus says, do it now. Get right with people now. That's the point of his next word picture. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison, and you won't get out until you've paid the last penny of the debt. Don't let conflict drag on and on and on. Consequences can be ugly. Heart righteousness means dealing with anger, forsaking it, repenting, apologizing, reconciling. Soon, stay out of court. <laughs> pastor John, not John Mazzardi, another pastor, felt himself getting really, really angry. He lived in a rural community where his daughter and a handful of other kids had to ride a van 
to school. It was an hour trip every day. And uh, the kids had started throwing balls of paper and other objects out the windows of the van at passing cars. So the, uh, the bus company told the driver to keep all the windows up all the time, except for the one right next to him. Well, problem was, an hour trip in a closed van in warm weather, it got really hot in there. And the kids were coming home from school every day with heat exhaustion. And Pastor John had talked to a secretary at the school, a secretary at the bus company, the driver, and got nowhere. They were not going to put these windows down. And he thought, having written some hot letters, told people on the phone what he thought of them, I'm going to have to go to court. I'm going to have to sue them. Then he read this verse. He thought, maybe there's a different way. So he called the president of the bus company and said, I am confident that you are concerned, as we parents are, about the safety of our children and others on the road. And the company president agreed. Pastor John said, would you ride with me in that van and just see what it's like? Well, it seemed like a reasonable request, so the company president agreed, and after an hour in the van, told the driver to open all the windows and to keep them open as long as the weather was warm. And Pastor John said, I will talk to the other parents and see if we can work with our children to keep them from throwing stuff out the window. I think Jesus would like that story. Let's pray. First of all, Father, thank you. We can never thank you enough that you have welcomed unworthy us into your son's kingdom. And when we die, you will welcome us into your forever home, not because we deserve it, but because you've chosen to credit to our account righteousness that we have not achieved. Thank you. Help us out of gratitude to make some progress toward actually living out the righteous standards of the Christian counterculture. To take seriously what Jesus says, seriously enough that we will do what we can with his help day by day until we see you face to face. And specifically, Lord, help us in our times to deal in a Christian manner with this issue of anger. We want to represent Jesus well. And so, possibly get angry about the right things at the right time and in the right way, but to forsake the unrighteous anger which tragically has so often led to murder. Thanks for speaking to us today through this portion of your word.
Now help us live it in Jesus' name. Amen.